you're seeing startups such as Fangage, Cameo um, is another one, CoStar, right? That are, they're creating one-to-one or more intimate virtual experiences for fans with their specific favorite player, coach, influencer, you name it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Privileged Black Kids with your host, Kendall Camp. On today's episode, I brought on two of my friends, Jared Barnes and Chris Quaidu, to discuss the future of sports tech. Um, Jared played college football at the University of Louisville and The Ohio State University. Um, he also founded a startup called Prime U and is now the manager of former player marketing and services with the Rams. Um, Chris, he is currently pursuing his MBA at Berkeley Haas and is an associate at a venture capital fund called Story Ventures. Um, we ended up discussing, you know, analytics and artificial intelligence, then spoke a little bit about the fitness industry might changing, and then sports betting, and finally, esports. Um, so as far as the Zoom issues this episode, it didn't go that bad, everything went well. I think it was because I recorded early in the morning where everybody else in my house was not using the Wi-Fi, so it went better. Um, also, if you're listening right now, show me that you're tuned in by taking a screenshot and posting on your Instagram stories that you're listening to the Privileged Black Kids Podcast. Make sure to tag our official Instagram page, which is at Privileged Black Kids Podcast. I'll put the names to all of that in the description. Also, subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to hear more content of Privileged Black Kids. And give a rate and review if you like this podcast as well. Um, make sure to share this with all your family and friends. And DM me on Instagram for any feedback. Again, thank you guys so much for love and support. And here's another episode of Privileged Black Kids. Hello, guys. This is another episode of Privileged Black Kids with your host, Kendall Camp. And we are recording this at 9.40 a.m. Pacific time on August 29, 2020. And today I am with Jared Barnes and Chris Quaidu. Um, before, like, you know, how are you guys doing right now? I'm doing all right, considering everything and the, the, the craziness of this year. Yeah. Gotcha. Jared, how are you doing? And there's been a lot going on in 2020. Uh, even in this past past week, a lot going on. But, you know, I think given given the circumstance, I'm doing about as well as you can. I'm blessed. Gotcha. So before we go into kind of like the future of sports tech and some of our predictions, I'm just wondering to give like some context for our listeners right now. Like where are you guys located? I'm in Berkeley, California. So I just started my uh, MBA program at Berkeley Haas this past Wednesday. Okay, now congratulations. Jared, what about you? I am based in LA. Uh, been here for about a year and a half, but man, kind of feel like a native Angelino at this point. Okay. What part of LA are you in? I'm in Chinatown. Chinatown. Oh, okay. Ooh. Yeah, you sound you somewhere different. Um, but yeah, like to kind of to start off talking about like the future of sports tech and some of our predictions. Um, I'm wondering for both of you first, just before we start going to predictions and AI and different things. You know, Chris, you can start off. How did you first get immersed or interested in sports? Uh, sports in general. So I grew up playing soccer. Um, I started playing soccer probably when I was like, I don't know, four or five years old. Um, but I actually don't really follow soccer that much. <laughs> the main sport that I follow is the NBA, um, but I'm a horrible basketball player. So <laughs> I, I play sports through soccer um, and I stay, you know, sort of following the news uh, through the NBA. Okay. Jared, what about you? Yeah, similar to Chris, right? I actually grew up playing football, um, American football, that is, uh, for any international listeners. Uh, started playing the game when I was six years old. 
ended up playing all the way up through college, pursued the NFL, um, had a series of, of tryouts and training camps, ended up not making an active roster, um, and spent the first two years of my career coaching, uh, and then started to transition into, into entrepreneurship and working in sports tech. Okay, now that's dope. Both of you guys like your experience. You guys definitely are ready for this episode. Um, but first off, I kind of want to talk about kind of the rise of analytics. We've seen teams like the Rockets shoot a bunch of bunch of three pointers because of analytics, and you know, looking at their coach. Uh, I'm, try, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember their coach. I almost forgot. Um, Mike D'Antoni, right? Yeah. And you know, I'm looking at as far as you know, what are some of your guys' thoughts on the rise of analytics? and how that's kind of changed sports recently. And, you know, Jared, you can start off. Yeah, I think the biggest thing, when you look at it from a high level, analytics is really, when it comes down to it, about a competitive advantage. Uh, just from my experience as a coach, the reason why teams invest in analytics and why you would hire someone and why you would ask a coach or staff member to uh, run tendencies or uh, uh, patterns, right, that have emerged from an opposing team is to, to find out how you can, in a sense, have a more competitive advantage. And with the amount of revenue that has continued to be invested in sport, invested in the development of players, invested in coaches' salaries, that competitive edge has become more and more competitive, mm -hmm. right? And so the demand uh, for excellence has become higher, right? And I think that is, uh, has really pushed sports to become more innovative and rely on data uh, more and more as it continues to evolve. Uh, but Chris and even Kendall would love to hear your perspective as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been extremely fascinating, especially to watch in the NBA over the past few years. You know, teams are shooting more and more threes every single year. Um, certain players that were looked at in a certain light in the past, you know, who may have been shooting a lot of difficult mid-range shots uh, and weren't the best defenders, you know, they're now looked at in a completely different light. Um, and are, you know, sort of looked at as liabilities in some cases. Um, so I've really enjoyed, like, the transformation of the league. Um, and, yeah. Yeah, I mean, honestly, Jared, like, it's fun to see. I think just seeing guys shoot a bunch of three-pointers, you know, small guys really taking over the league, it's fun from a perspective of kind of, like, a person who probably isn't going to make the league or just a shorter guard. Like, it's nice to see. Um, but I think it, it is weird or it does hurt certain guys, like Chris said, who are, you know, guys who really kill in the mid-range game. Um, like guys, you know, like Melo back in the day, you know, he's a superstar. But now you look at him, it's like, oh, he doesn't make threes. He's not a great defender. Like there was a point where he wasn't even in the league. And he's still one of those guys, you know, last two minutes of the game, I would want him to have the ball to get a shot up. Um, so I don't know. I feel like it's, it's, it's changed things slightly maybe for the worse for those guys. But if you're looking at analytics, like, yeah, the Rockets, they shoot a bunch of threes, they win games. But I still think there's a lot of different things that maybe AI can't really take. You know, if you look at the Warriors, I don't know if artificial intelligence can really tell, like, team chemistry and stuff like that. So that is something that we'll have to see. Um, but I'm wondering with, you know, like, coach like Mike D'Antoni, like a coach of the Rockets, do you think analytics has made, the like, the job of a coach harder or easier? You know, do you think it's now to where – it's easier to get fired because, oh, we have all these analytics, what's just going on, you're out of here. Like, Chris, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So as far as getting fired more easily, you know, I think that's kind of just the way that professional sports work, right? Like if you disappoint as a coach, you're going to get fired kind of regardless. Um, with that being said, I do think, you know, some uh, teams are leaning in harder uh, into analytics than some others and you see some weird um, 
you know, inflation and statistics, right? So like the, the Rockets, you know, to use Mike D'Antoni and the Rockets as an example, they play super high pace. And as a result, you see, you know, James Harden's stats just being like out of control, yeah. um, you know, but at the same time, you know, I would argue, you know, maybe the team itself isn't as good as the stats would, uh, would suggest. Jared, what do you think? It's interesting. You know, I, I, Chris, I agree with you, right? And I think you can see it two ways. Uh, analytics certainly can make your job as a coach easier because you have a more objective uh, perspective and objective look at what's happening in the court in real time, right? I think that's where the real uh, upside is for a coach. You can quickly, you know, pull out an iPad or go over to, you know, the stat sheet and just look, okay, where are we at, you know, exactly right now because it's being tracked in a way that it wasn't tracked before. Right. And if you guys watch the last dance and you see uh, Phil Jackson and kind of the old school triangle offense, how physical that game was. And it was almost even more about uh, time of possession than it was the the finesse of the game. Or now time of possession, it's almost I don't want to say it's irrelevant, but it's just a different different game. Mm -hmm. Right. Where it makes it challenging as a coach is that if you rely too heavily on data, sometimes you don't actually allow the intangibles of that player to truly thrive, right? And obviously you, you want to have a system and structure and philosophy as a coach. But at the end of the day, we're talking about the NBA specifically, right? It's different in other leagues. But the NBA specifically is such a player-driven league that you can build it in a sense around uh, a set of players, even one player in some cases. So it's, it's interesting, right? And I'm not an NBA coach. I'm sure they would tell you much differently. But again, just from my objective perspective, I think it, it, you can look at it a couple of different ways as it, as it either helps, but also kind of hinders coaches in some senses. Yeah. Um, and I guess to kind of, you know, stay on that point, I'm wondering both of your guys' kind of thoughts as far as artificial intelligence and how that can maybe improve an athlete. Um, and Jared, you can kind of start off. Have you seen anything, you know, working with the Rams as far as you guys using artificial intelligence that has improved athletes over time? You know, that's a great question. I won't speak on behalf of our performance staff, but what I can say is that the, the game and how athletes are training is constantly evolving. Uh, training at a young age, I mean, specializing, you know, our, our sense of specializing in football uh, at a very young age is, is, I would say, pretty common. I mean, look at states like Texas and even the state of California. Uh, just loads of talent every single year, and it's because the training is becoming more and more specialized. And if you even look at uh, um, I know Nike has had their uh, vision goggles. There's been a number of uh, neuro trainers in, in reaction time. There's actually an app uh, from the late uh, Kobe Bryant and his uh, company called Mamba Rise. that mm. is, in a sense, a neuro trainer and it trains your reaction time. And based off of uh, how quickly you can adapt, the AI within the platform will make it more challenging for you, um, whether that's route recognition, uh, uh, reaction time on catching a football, Right, a number of different things it can do to, in a sense, train your brain to become better and better. Um, and it's, it's interesting, right, how it's evolving. I think the downside of that, again, to our earlier point, is athletes are, you know, from what I see, leaning more and more towards AI coaches than maybe in-person coaches, mm-hmm. um, which is tough. And so it's, it's forced coaches to upskill dramatically. And those coaches who can upskill are, are the ones you're seeing be able to not only relate but have success with their athletes because there's it's a it's a formula right it's it's there's part technology but it's also part trust part uh character part relatability in order to create kind of this formula where athletes are are being not only coached but developed um 
using technology as a supplement, but not necessarily a replacement. Does that make sense? I know I get on these yeah, tangents. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting, it's, interesting ecosystem, how it goes back and forth. Yeah, no, it's all good. I think, you know, that's an interesting point because I'm wondering, you know, if I was, you know, back when I was playing, if, you know, AI was saying all these things or just like, I was looking at data that said, hey, I'm actually this player. My coach isn't playing me this much. I'm like, yo, like, what's up? Like, look at this data. Like, this is actually what's true. Um, but I don't know. I think it really depends on the coach. You might have older coaches that are more reluctant to start using those things. You have younger coaches. I think you look at guys like Brad Stevens, you know, I think they're very data driven as far as what they do with the Celtics, you know? Um, so it really depends. But Chris, I'm kind of curious on your stance, you know, working in venture capital, you don't have to talk about your firm or what, you know, for your portfolio companies, but have you seen anything with artificial intelligence that currently is changing sports? Yeah, sure. So I think there's a lot of really interesting and exciting things going on in the space. Uh, shifting gears a little bit away from AI coaching, but still within AI. I was just reading about a company today backed by Kristaps Porzingis and a few other investors, and it actually uses AI to find data patterns that will help you determine how likely someone is to get injured. You know, and just within the last few years, you know, even without AI, you know, and just other sports technology, you know, you see guys like LeBron James and Tom Brady and some of these other athletes, athletes remaining dominant far longer than anyone previously thought was possible, right? So including more technology and more AI to further improve performance and longevity, you know, I think that can only uh, be a benefit. So I'm really excited to see, you know, what the future holds. Yeah, no, I can only imagine, you know, if we had something like that for Derrick Rose a few years ago, right. maybe we could have saw something. Um, and I think that has started to shift because, you know, look, I think, I think there's certain videos that were out there even before that can track, you know, the way a player lands, you can then know if they're mm -hmm. going to get injured, you know, in the future. Um, for instance, Derrick Rose jumped really high. He was only like about six, one, six, two, and he was bouncing all over the place. Yeah. Um, and even I think it went into like the way Westbrook landed, even though he's just as athletic, it helps him not as have as many injuries as D Rose. So mm -hmm. if you can do that for maybe like, let's say like a top athlete, like right now, like Mikey Williams and tracking the way he jumps, you know, maybe he has less injuries. Um, but to kind of more we shift away, cause you know, all of us, we're not NBA athletes um, <laughs> or NFL athletes, but for at home fitness, I'm wondering, do you think trainers will be diminished because of the pandemic or how can gyms really improve in a society where there's really going to be no contact for a long time, you know, and Jared, you can maybe speak on that a little bit first, as far as what you think is going to happen with, you know, gyms and just fitness in general. No, oh, it's a great question. And, and just briefly to backtrack, right. As Chris and, and Kendall, you were talking about AI, I think in AI and sports specifically, I often think about like why, right. And then to, to transition to at home fitness, it's, you know, if I'm an athlete, why would I engage with, with an AI coach or, uh, you know, do a uh, load management test and submit my body to a, an AI performance uh, uh, platform or tool or, you know, whatever it may be, it's ultimately to sustain performance in order for me to get recruited and perform better and ultimately help my earning potential, right? And, and you know, compete and, and win a championship, of course, mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, it's oftentimes about just performance. And then, then to transition that to at-home fitness of what, why, why do people go to gyms in the first place? You know, I think for the community, for the accountability, mm -hmm. uh, uh, for that environment, and sometimes just to say they went to the gym. Yeah. Right? And with the pandemic, obviously that has been 
you know, cut off and, and some gyms are able to open with, you know, more restrictions, but at home fitness, if you look at it now, obviously most notably you look at Peloton and, and Mir's recent acquisition mm-hmm. from New Lemon, right? Technology is starting to find ways to provide those exact things of community, of accountability, of um, a sense of pride or an environment that you're around that you can share, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also to say like, I have a Peloton. That has now become a social construct and a social movement. Uh, I am also a proud owner of a Peloton. That's a that's a talking point you can say over dinner, right? So, I'm I'm thinking at a very macro level before you know we'll dive into the more minute. Um, and Chris would love to hear your perspective from a VC lens, but just from a a pure social construct, right? We're seeing technology create those same bullet points of why you would even go to a gym in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess all I'll add is, you know, I've seen, you know, definitely since uh, since the pandemic and in the recent months, I've seen a lot of, you know, approaches to at-home fitness. Um, and I do expect, you know, this trend to continue even after the pandemic, right? Like, we, we've already been sheltered, you know, for five, six months. And, you know, that's definitely long enough to create long-term habits for people. You know, I know myself personally, you know, I was a pretty frequent gym goer before the pandemic. And I... I'm just not that motivated to, uh, to work out at home, you know, and as a result, you know, I've kind of been, uh, been slacking for a while. And so, you know, if there is a solution that's, you know, right for someone like me, who's, you know, sort of on the lazier side when I can't go to the gym, you know, I think that's a very promising option, even, even post pandemic. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think, um, you know, for myself, like I'm a runner, so, you know, I'm a lot of times just, I don't use the gym. I just like to run outside and kind of get away, but even, you know, coming back home and just, you know, running through your neighborhood, you get a little bit tired of it. Mm -hmm. And then for some of you guys know that as far as the Northern California fires, there was a point for the last week I really wasn't outside. And, you know, it's definitely different. And this is going to tie in some more kind of like how, you know, I guess artificial intelligence and data and algorithms work. You know, a lot of us have Apple watches, right? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of this weird thing to where it's like now, every time I walk or run, I want to have my Apple watch because I can check, oh, I did this many miles. And it has like this, this I, it, go, it kind of goes into dopamine, but you just get happy and you're like, oh, like I'm, I'm competing, I'm, I'm getting better. Um, but I don't know if that's maybe the best thing. Now you have all these people that want to post on Instagram every time they work out. And it kind of questions, you know, what's better morally and then best for yourself physically as far as keeping yourself fine. Um, but you, both of you guys have great points because I don't think it's going to change, of course, with the pandemic. Um, I would just really be interested for myself to see what's going to happen with voice. Um, because having somebody in your ear telling you what you should be doing during a rep or while you're running, I think is going to really prolong or, or, or get or going faster now with this pandemic. So, yeah, I actually, uh, sorry to jump in, but I was just reading about this really interesting startup and I can't remember the name, but basically you can create like a digital, um, pace setter. So I don't know if it uses like a virtual reality headset or glasses or something like that, but you basically have like a virtual person uh, running with you. And I think that's really interesting for, for motivation. Yeah, no, that, that, that's dope. Um, Jared, have you seen any like things lately just that you're like, has really kind of caught your eye or things that maybe you work with? You know, I think as it relates to at-home fitness too, a big uh, part of that in addition to fitness is nutrition. Right. And I know it's more of like a subset uh, uh, within kind of this fitness and wellness market. But you, 
in addition to at-home fitness, you don't, you're not necessarily going to go to GNC anymore and get that protein powder that you always would. So you're starting to see more direct-to-consumer brands, uh, almost in a subscription format, deliver uh, supplements, deliver uh, workouts, right? I mean, you're seeing major brands take this direct-to-consumer approach. I mean, obviously Peloton has a physical product, but they've created this community where they have incredible amount of subscribers as well. In addition, you know, Nike's just done a phenomenal job of creating an extension of their brand that is built communities. And so I say all that to say that fitness in general uh, gain, has con continued to gain traction because of the community, right? Mm -hmm. like it, it's about not only your own performance, but in a sense who you work out with, right? That's a lot of the times why we go to the gym. It's, it's somewhat of a social construct. So I've been really impressed to see that transition digitally. Very interested to see how that grows and what sticks and what kind of fades away as we hopefully return to gyms here soon. Mm -hmm. uh, just because, you know, honestly, one thing too that I've thought about is almost the psychology behind it. And you get in these routines, right? Like I'm at my I'm at my desk now, right at my home, and I've gotten in a routine, and it kind of feels weird if I take a a Zoom call in another spot in my house, and I'm like, ah, this feels a little bit weird, but it's because I've done it for 60 days or more, right? So how much of the psychological influence will create that conversion of individuals who have subscribed to direct consumer, direct to consumer fitness, or even wellness or supplement products? Um, uh, really interesting, you know, just for me, I've been thinking, of, that's just one thing I've been thinking about. Don't know the answer to it, right? But yeah. very interested to see how it plays out. Yeah, no, and that's a good point. Cause like even right next to me, you know, we have all my dad's workout gear and this is where like I produce my podcast and I go to work and I go to school and, you know, it's all in this one area. And I don't know, I mean, in some instances, like people like it because you don't have to spend the time traveling to a gym and stuff like that. But it is weird when everything that you do, either work related, school related, or just working out, it's all in one place. So, mm -hmm. um, but to kind of stick with really, I guess, the consumer, I want to talk about sports gambling. Um, you know, it's something that's become, I guess, legal now. And Chris, you can start off. I'm wondering, what are some of the new things that you think are going to happen now um, with sports gambling and that, that being, I guess, legal? <laughs> sure, yeah. So, you know, taking a step back and just going back a few years, you know, I think companies like FanDuel and, and DraftKings, you know, I, mm -hmm. I think that was a massive, massive change in the industry. Uh, with daily fantasy sports, you know, I dabble every once in a while in FanDuel. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm not great, but it helps me uh, remain more engaged, right? So because of this, you know, now the actual sports leagues are highly incentivized to to lean into this. And, you know, that's why like on ESPN now, you hear more talk about, you know, betting lines and those sorts of things. So, you know, I think more um, gambling and betting on events within games, I think that's just going to become increasingly popular. Mm -hmm. You know, you get the engagement up, uh, you, you get people getting lucky and telling other friends about how they won so much money during the game. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that's just a win-win situation, you know, both for whoever is controlling the gambling and for the sports leagues. Mm -hmm. To echo Chris, like totally agree with you, right? You're going to start to see instead of just, you know, what's the spread and who's going to you know, cover the spread, you're going to see in football terminology uh, how many catches will this certain receiver have? How many drops will this certain receiver have? How many specific yards will this quarterback throw for? Um, it's second down and five. Will they get the first down, right? You're going to see a, almost a more of a gamification uh, uh, play to, to specific sport context to engage 
viewership because you're going to start to see more at home viewership, right? One of the things we've been looking at as we open a new venue here um, with the Rams is it's incredibly exciting, but also somewhat challenging in the pandemic. I want to say somewhat challenging, very challenging. Yeah. Right. And so what does that at home engagement look like? Um, sports, sports betting is, is a huge part of that. And that's not, not something I'm you know, necessarily speaking for on behalf of the Rams that we've you know, signed on to do, but yeah. just at that consumer level, uh, certainly a huge part, right? That uh, the, the evolution, I would love to, maybe, maybe we should write a piece about this, the evolution of the barbershop banter, right? When you're in the shop and you're in the chair and you're just, you know, bartering and you're saying, Hey, bet, I bet, bet $10, you know, so-and-so hits this shot and he does, and you start going crazy. That, that construct, that thought, if you can formalize that through technology, think that's a, a blue ocean of opportunity um, that, that we're going to see. And obviously it's not legalized across the U.S. just yet, but very interested to see how it scales. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And now I'm kind of thinking like, imagine if I'm in the barbershop with my friend and we can bet and we can just do a transaction on our phone, you know, like that's golden right there. Um, and like you said, it's obviously going to change right now because, and maybe you know of a little bit more than me, but I don't know when fans can really start going to venues and stadiums and arenas like they used to. Like, it's going to be this kind of weird time to where we don't know. And, you know, hopefully sports is going to be there, but people do like to gamble. People do like to predict of what's going to happen. Um, so I don't know. Like, I'm really interested in it. I, I do wonder as far as sports gambling, is there still pushback as far as, you know, what's going to happen with referees? And if what if something happens, like where there's something under the table, like, have you guys heard anything about that as far as within sports gambling? And, you know, Chris, you can start off. Yeah. So I, I mean, I haven't heard anything like specific, but you know, it's definitely a risk that should be top of mind. Right. You know, just to kind of follow on to what Jared was saying before, I can envision a world where you can bet on almost any event in real time within the game. Right. So like who's going to win the tip, uh, who's going to get the first pass after the tip, who's going to take the first shot after the tip, is this shot going to go, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, referees obviously have a, quite a bit of control over games, right? So the more uh, gambling events you're introducing to the game, I think just the, the greater uh, potential for risk, right? And in the past several years, you know, we've seen a lot of relatively high profile uh, scandals, you know, related to referees. So, yeah, I don't know. I think some sort of solution is going to have to come into the space to, you know, just uh, maintain integrity as more and more gambling uh, is introduced. I couldn't agree more with you, Chris, right? Um, it, there, there's going to be a host of regulations um, uh, as, as the space continues to evolve, because even though it was a fictional movie, there was a reason The Longest Yard was a movie with Adam Sandler and uh, in, in, in how the whole storyline evolved and emerged, which fortunately and unfortunately could become very true in the future. Who knows? Uh, but I, I just shared with you guys a startup uh, called Champions Round. The upside of the sports betting space is the uh, exhilaration and excitement and adrenaline rush that comes with it. So very similar to how we were talking about an at-home fitness and the value of, of building communities that, that Peloton and other brands have done, you, you, I think you're going to start to see more communities evolve and emerge um, and almost an affinity come from participating in a fantasy sports league, even more so than already is, that I would say is really strong. Right. Especially you, you get the playoffs in a fantasy sports league. You may have a internal company email thread about that. Who knows, depending on where you're at. Right. But there's a, again, a startup called champions round that really specializes in building communities around specific events that can be 
uh, in a sense, gambled upon. I know they did a phenomenal job with the NFL draft uh, earlier this year in April uh, on just picking slots of who would be drafted when, which again, who would have thought five years ago, even three years ago, that that would have been a major uh, betting event, but it is. And I think only will continue to grow as will the NBA draft lottery. So again, very interesting to, to think about not only the economics, uh, but the legislation and then the ecosystem that comes with that. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, I spent a number of years um, in, in Louisville, Kentucky and the Kentucky Derby. Uh, my goodness, man, that is a, that's an event. That, that is, and it's not just an event, but it's like a, a, I don't even, a movement where, you know, for me not being from the state of Kentucky, you know, having a chance to be exposed to that, uh, like nothing else. Like, like it's a culture, I would say this, it's a cultural moment, right? Uh, is it is it horse racing? Yes, but it's it's so much more than that. And I think as technology has continued to be integrated into this space, only going to grow from there. Yeah, you know, I love both of those points. And honestly, I'm thinking back to now. Um, I remember in 2019. I mean, you guys remember when uh, when Dame hit the shot on Paul George? Yeah, absolutely. So like, I was in my dorm. I was no, I was in the lobby. I was doing an essay, and I was kind of like looking at the game like on my screen. And we hit the shot. I could hear people in my dorm being like, yo, what? That's crazy. And I'm thinking like, man, like if there was this little community to where you could gamble and talk about things, like I could hear six people already in my dorm. I could hear them watching the same exact game I am. And, you know, if you could do that in like some type of setting and application, because you already do see it with Twitter. That's where a lot of people engage during the game. It's, it's become a weird thing to where people don't even watch commercials now they go to Twitter and, you know, start DMing people, their friends or whatever. So that's something that's very interesting. Um, but sticking with kind of the fan experience, you know, obviously that's changed to COVID, COVID-19. And it might be a while before we go back to viewing sports, you know, at a large capacity. So, um, you know, Chris, you can start off. And mm-hmm. I'm, I really want you to talk about kind of some of the new changes that you think are going to happen with the fan experience, you know. Yeah, um, this is another area that I think is just extremely uh, interesting and I'm extremely excited about, right? So I'm sure both of you guys have heard, you know, about VR uh, and just attending games as a virtual fan. I think that's incredible, right? Like, you can still charge for that experience, mm-hmm. but to be able to be virtual courtside, you know, you don't have to pay courtside prices, um, but you still have, you know, a similar experience. So I think that's uh, that's incredible. You know, and then outside of just, like, live events uh, and, and gambling, you know, I know the NBA is exploring some uh, some blockchain opportunities mm-hmm. where fans can, uh, you know, collect like rare player cards. And it's just another way to remain uh, engaged in the sport scene, you know, uh, even outside of the, the actual game itself. Mm-hmm. I think to echo Chris, very interested to see how this space emerges. Uh, if you think about it, the, the days of 100,000 people gathering together for a football game, the World Cup, Olympics, don't know exactly when we'll see that again. Mm-hmm. And even in opening our new stadium here in, in Los Angeles, our, our, our seating capacity is actually 70,000, right? When people say, oh, 70,000, once you want to build it to be bigger and, and more grand? Actually, the answer is, is no, because, you know, moving forward, really, in what I, I see as a future fan experience is a more intimate, it's a more mm-hmm. personalized experience where people are able to lean in more, able to feel uh, more connected to the, the specific event, feel more connected to the players. 
in person, right? If, if when that when that returns from a digital standpoint, you're seeing startups such as Fangage, Cameo, um, is another one, CoStar, right? That are they're creating one to one or more intimate virtual experiences for fans with their specific favorite player, coach, influencer, you name it, right? And of course, there's an upcharge for that um, and, a, and a high demand for that because people, the, the days of you just rooting for um, the Golden State Warriors just because the Golden State Warriors are cool, not so much, right? You're rooting for Steph Curry. We're, yeah, we're, we're fans of the players. Fans of the players, right? So people are leaning into the players. They want to know the player's story. They want to know how the player's feeling. They want to know who that individual is as a person, right? Not just as an athlete. And so if you look at how leagues are positioning their athletes at this field of player marketing or athlete marketing is only growing more and more and more. Uh, the NFL has what, done what's called a helmets off initiative where they're obviously the NFL different than the NBA, right? You have a helmet on. And so it's harder to get to know players as people. And so if you look in, and you watch the league's marketing and how they're positioning players, very rarely do you see a helmet on, right? Unless it's a sports specific, like a football specific commercial or, or an ad, but majority of the time it's a helmets off. Why? Because they want fans to connect to that player individually to have a stronger level of affinity, right? And especially if you think about Gen Z, in uh, in today's youth, they're following players, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and even for me personally, I'm just a fan of the game, right? I I have players that I follow, uh, and it's a little bit different for me as an NFL employee. Of course, I'm a huge fan of the Rams. Got to be, you know, mm-hmm. that's certainly my team. But I'm also a fan of, of, of players, right? And I think as we look at fan experiences moving forward, uh, there's certainly going to be more and more of a premium placed on that intimate experience. Yeah, I mean those. I'm honestly thinking back to myself, you know, I'm a Gen Zer being 20 years old and thinking how like I view sports and even to when I would go to like war games, my eyes would go to the players that I love the most. So if I go to a game and I'm seeing the Thunder and the Warriors play, I'm watching my eyes are stuck on Westbrook or Steph, you know, like I'm probably not going to look at Harrison Barnes that much while, while they're within the game, you know, and that even goes, yeah, but I mean, like that goes within you know, just not just not just with that, but then who I follow on social media. I follow dudes like LaMelo Ball, Mikey Williams, who are high school, you know, guys who haven't even played in the league yet. And I don't even follow like the official Lakers account, you know, like that's kind of a crazy thing to think about. And, you know, I do think sports that already don't have helmets on or some type of face where it makes it easier. Um, but you look at places like, you know, looking at the NFL, if you have athletes that definitely have, you know, some type of brand or something that kind of sticks out you know kids want to see that kids want to kids want to do that and also i think just sticking on with like media and technology i think media companies have to stick on people love stories you know you look at like a podcast like all the smoke people listen to an hour and a half two hour conversation with Draymond green because they want to hear everything that's on everything that's on his mind and you know just this whole story instead of the typical like two minute thing on ESPN with Steph Curry, like, cool, but I want to really know what's going on in your life. And, you know, you have to lean into that. Um, Real quick, Kendall, yeah. Kendall and Chris would love to hear your thoughts on the you know, specific, same lens, but for women's sports. Mm. Would, love to, would love to hear your thoughts on that, just as we've seen the NWSL, WNBA, even um, uh, collegiate, you know, women's gymnastics, right? Like you talk about stories. I think, you know, very similar. Would love to hear your thoughts on, on women's sports, if you have any. 
Sure. So yeah, be, before we dive into women's sports, I just wanted to plug uh, JaVale McGee's um, vlog that he's been doing. doing yeah. yeah, it's it's honestly one of the most entertaining things within sports uh, since the pandemic. Um, yeah, and women's sports, you know, I think honestly, they've, you know, women's sports have just been like so underappreciated, right? So my younger sister is actually has, she's a lifelong soccer player, you know, she was previously a D1 soccer player. Um, and you know, I, I just think with all this new, like, you know, social media and ways for for uh, players to get closer to their fans, you know, I would hope that, um, you know, one, there'd be more of an appreciation for just how talented, you know, these female athletes are. You always hear, you know, your your idiot friend who's like, oh, I could be XYZ WNBA player <laughs> who, like, couldn't even make, like, a D3 college team. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I would hope that these uh, these female athletes would be appreciated more um, and also would just, you know, gain uh, gain in popularity by being able to get in front of uh, people, you know, a lot easier, um, you know, as opposed to just uh, during their games. Yeah, I mean, like like you said, like kind of the storytelling aspect, I think they can really lean into that. And I've seen it myself, you know, podcasts I listen to, you know, maybe it's a WNBA player that I haven't, you know, wanted to look at just because of mainstream media and, you know, you got to get checks in. So it's like, oh, I'm going to go straight to the NBA. But when you hear those stories, a lot of times actually for me, I've noticed a lot of women sports journalists are a lot more relatable because they have to get there just off, you know, how good they are on a speaking point, how good they write. You know, I love Charles Barkley, but I'm not going to play in the league and then go trade to Turner Sports. But I can see somebody that, you know, went to college or, you know, got their master's or work at, worked at a lot of different media companies, and now they're on TV. Um, and I think that's something you would kind of lead into more and kind of make it more relatable. Um, and I don't even want to talk about really what's happened within the last few days, but the WNBA has killed it as far as, you know, really stating their message on Black Lives Matter and, you know, mm-hmm. racial injustice. So um, I think that's a good point. Um, I wanted to ask you, Jared, as far as kind of what's going on with stadiums and arenas, you know, due to COVID. And I kind of had this idea to where like, and I don't think it's going to happen, but, you know, you look at the NBA finals in the bubble. What if they're like, hey, only 20 people can now watch game six of, the, six of the finals. You guys can all bet. And then before you know it, you have Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and some other rich dude watching the games, but none of the other normal people. I don't know if that's going to happen, but maybe on a more large scale, you're going to have people start going back to stadiums and arenas, but you maybe can't have all 20,000 or 70,000. Do you think that's going to start outraging people as far as ticket prices going up or to where like only a certain amount of people can be in an arena or stadium? It's a great question. I don't have a perfect answer, but if I'm a betting man, I I would bet that uh, ticket prices are gonna go up significantly and they're gonna place a premium on that because teams are going to have to invest significantly in creating that stadium experience. Because if you think about it, you've seen a number of, I'll just speak from an NFL perspective, won't speak from an NBA or other sports, Mm -hmm. but teams have declared, hey, we'll have 15,000 fans uh, in the stadium this year, we'll have seven, you know, seventy five hundred fans in the stadium this year. If you think about that, that is like a glorified high school football game, yeah. Right. And and why do you go to an NFL football game, or why do you go to a premier college football game? That exhilaration of the energy that comes from it, right? It's like no other. That's why you go. Um, and so you're going to see teams invest significantly in what that stadium experience looks like. Um, and with that investment is going to come a premium, higher premium on that ticket price. And you're, you're going to start to see a different type of individual 
walking through uh, the doors of a stadium. It's probably going to be a more premium individual. Um, and so to combat that, I think you're also going to see uh, that at-home viewership be more intentional as well. I know specifically from the Rams perspective, we, we place a high, high emphasis uh, on culture and celebrating culture in a sense of being one with the people, whether that's uh, uh, from the from uh, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know, earlier this year with uh, LA Pride uh, and Pride Month, Hispanic Heritage Month, uh, very active in that, even Chinese and Lunar New Year, uh, very active in that space, right? So we're finding new ways uh, to engage and touch and connect with people, even though it's a little bit outside of the realm of, of football, we bring it back to football to connect with people because we understand of who's actually in the stadium, that's a certain, you know what I mean? That's a certain type of individual in that stadium. Mm -hmm. um, and so to actually reach the masses and engage with our specific market, the LA market that's in, you know, vastly different than Houston, vastly different than the Bay Area, vastly different than Milwaukee, Wisconsin, right? Um, what, what actually connects, uh, that, that's, it, it's, it's definitely a high priority for us, but a challenge, man, I don't have a perfect answer to that. I'm interested to hear what, what Chris and uh, and you think as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd say my, my thoughts are pretty close to yours, Jared. Um, the only thing I, I would say is, you know, it ties into the energy piece, right? So at the same time, while tickets themselves are going to be exclusive, I do think there's a le legitimate argument to say, you know, with fewer people at the games, you know, maybe there's less of an incentive to go. Um, you know, but unfortunately, I do think you know, ticket prices are probably just going to be higher, which is unfortunate for fans like me who, you know, very rarely <laughs> go to games and uh, are living on a budget. So, yeah, I mean, it, it sucks for the fact, yeah, you know, when you don't have a lot of money and you want to go to games, some of that is going to, there's going to be pushback and certain things you probably can't do. I think that does, you know, really tell leagues or companies to really try to help that fan experience to where whatever it is, is VR, AR, what they're doing on their phone or computer, like trying to enhance those, that experience. And you've already done that with the virtual fans. Like mm -hmm. at first when I thought, saw, I was like, this is goofy. I don't like this. But then I was like, actually it works. I mean, you can have little Wayne just like pop in the game and you can, you know, do those quick, like in those three to five second breaks, there's not anything going on. You know, a commentator can be like, Hey, Lil Wayne's at the game. And it's kind of like this cool little moment, you know? So I think that's going to keep happening as far as they're going to do something with the virtual fans and keep that going. But as far as ticket prices, they want to make the same amount of money as if the 20,000 fans are still there. So prices are going to go up and there's rich people who are going to pay for that, you know, just to be like, Oh yeah, I went to uh, the Lakers Clippers game where there was only like 10,000 fans, you know what I mean? So, I mean, that would be something different. Um, but just like a couple more questions before we kind of head out, I'm wondering, you know, I guess your thoughts really on esports. You know, I myself, I'm not big into kind of what what's going on in that area, but I do see it as a place that's popping. And I'm wondering, you know, Jared, you can start off. What are some of your predictions for esports and what's going to happen? Yeah, it's a great question and another uh, field that is emerging a ton. And obviously, there's been a, a lot of coverage around it the past couple of years, and it's one of those uh, industries as a colleague of mine likes to say that everyone talks about, but very few people actually understand the inner workings yeah. of esports and what it is and economically, you know, how it actually works. Um, it's interesting, right? And you talk about first and foremost, uh, community, right? And you think about what makes esports strong is that it connects uh, experiences together in ways that 
you know, before we, we had, right? Whether that's from the streaming side or even from the competitive side. Um, and I can speak just, I'll, I'll kind of stay in my lane from a sports perspective, whether that's with the NBA 2K League or even kind of the reemergence of, of NCAA football, uh, the game, and seeing how that has continued to drive fan affinity and followings in a way um, that is significant, right? I mean, a, your standard Madden tournament that's you know, sponsored by EA, I mean, the viewership uh, uh, and, and, and media value for those experiences, incredibly high. And the industry as a whole only continuing to experience some hockey stick growth, at least in North America. Um, and even, even as other countries across the world are becoming more and more uh, connected, that's it's growing in other markets as well. So really interesting to see, right? But I think one thing that's unique, and I actually uh, uh, used uh, the company Athlane for our, our blueprint uh, uh DRF project was one of the companies I used. Mm-hmm. Athlean Lane is connecting now and bringing sports sponsorship into the esports space, right? Where if you look at esports and you actually break it down, about 75% of the revenue that's generated from esports actually comes from sponsorship, mm-hmm. right? So Athlane connects brands to esports athletes and esports entities um, and provides the uh, aggregate data for them to make informed decisions on, hey, who's the best athlete to target for a specific activation we want to do, right? So I think one, just the fact that Athlane exists lets me know that there's a market for that and the external brands went into that space because of who the core consumer is and who's actually on those platforms and who's either competing or, you know, why the streaming and, and, and acting as a viewer. So it's really interesting to see uh, just at a high level. I'm excited about it. I'm not overly competitive. I play more for, for fun. Yeah. Uh, but it is, man, it's really cool to see. But Chris and, and Kendall would love to hear your thoughts as yeah. well. So I could talk about this for hours, but I won't you know, because mm-hmm. of time. Uh, I don't know if I ever mentioned this to, to either of you guys, but when I was growing up, actually, I was a very, very uh, competitive gamer. Um, this was way before people were using the term esports or anything like that. You know, I was a very competitive uh, Halo player to the point where, you know, had my parents believed in it and actually uh, paid for it. I think I would have, you know, attempted to become a professional uh esports player um and you know in my investment management career for the past five years you know i've covered various areas of tech um but a number of the publicly traded gaming stocks um and activision blizzard is one that's leaned into esports probably more than some others you know they have a city-based uh overwatch league and a city-based call of duty league and you know where esports is now where you know there are more esports watchers than uh most if not all of the actual traditional professional sports um, and the space is so nascent, right? And a lot of these top uh, esports performers, like, yeah, some of them are paid a lot of money. They're not paid nearly as much as professional athletes. And I actually do think there's some room for that gap to close. Um, and I guess the last thing I'll say is uh, just on per capita spending in esports versus traditional sports, right? We're nowhere near the potential. If you were getting as much money per fan in esports as you did in the NFL or NBA, you know, that's a really, really incredible market. So I'm really, really excited to see what develops in the coming years. Yeah, I, I think with esports, you know, as somebody who's not really been ingrained in and was kind of a former gamer, always trying to play 2K, it's interesting looking at my brother who's 17 and I'll go to his computer and he'll be like playing his own game, but then have a Twitch account open watching somebody else play again. I'm like, yo, what's going on? Like, it's weird seeing, I'll see how many people he's watching playing live sports. And then on top of that with COVID-19, people are home and you know a lot of these kids they won't be able to go to like their favorite players nba game or nfl game 
So we kind of lean into esports or playing different games or just like interacting with those. I don't want to, can you, do you call them athletes? Like, what do you, what do you call them? So I think officially they probably want to be called athletes. <laughs> you know, I think where, where the world is now, you know, I don't think it's that common, but you know, I mean, there's a legitimate argument to say, right? Like the reflexes of some of these kids are insane. Um, you know, there's a lot of teamwork that's actually a lot closer to traditional sports. I think that a lot of people on the outside don't realize. Um, and there's a lot of like communication and leadership skills that are necessary to be successful. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a stretch maybe, but it's not the biggest stretch. Yeah, no, those are good points. Um, I guess it's kind of like a last question for both of you guys and, you know, Jared, you can start off anything, I guess that is really think is going to pop as far as within sports technology and also kind of some of your thoughts as far as the NBA boycott and what's going to happen in the future, because right now sports, you know, things are up in the air. We don't know how things are going to going and seeing how change is going to happen. Obviously, like you're not a politician, you're not a lawyer, so you don't have to go too in depth, but some of kind of your thoughts on what's going to happen for sports in the future. Yeah, you know, I think at a very high level, and I'll lean more towards the latter part of your question, at a very high level, I think we're truly now beginning to see the influence sports has not only on our country, but on uh, government in general, right? On, on what, you know, many would quantify as you know, government policy or, or issues. Um, and for me, I, I greatly admire it, uh, and it's it's awesome to see, right? And I think the influence of athletes are growing stronger and stronger every day, uh, largely in part because of the fan affinity, but also in part because of the revenue, because of uh, the key stakeholders that are involved, right? Um, and I mean, obviously, the NBA has been the leader in the space. Uh, the NFL has done a phenomenal job. Major League Soccer, the WNBA. Uh, Major League Baseball, even which was a tradition, you know, very traditional league has become more and more progressive, right? So at a very high level, you're seeing teams and leagues lean into the times more and more and become more socially relevant and become more of, of uh, social movements and, uh, in a sense, ecosystems that influence cities rather than just a team. And so why I bring that up is as it relates to sports tech, the more technology that is, in a sense, intertwined with teams, leagues, athletes, is also going to now be intertwined with a more broad range of consumers, right? So I think as it relates to sports tech, you're going to start to see different, you know, a more, more, more broad range of consumers be involved in the space rather than just your traditional fan that was, you know, watching the Chicago Cubs in, you know, 1987, right? Like, that the, the definition of what it means to be a fan, uh, whether you're avid and a diehard or just a casual fan, right? That range is going to continue to grow, as will the range of technologies and uh, 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 enterprises that are engaging with those with those fans. So, super high level answer, man. But excited to see kind of future and where that goes. Yeah, yeah. I'll also focus more on the the social impact part of the question as opposed to the tech part. Um, you know, number one, the NBA is just showing again that it's one of the best leagues <laughs> for a number of reasons. Um, and, you know, their their uh, impact in this area is just another one. You know, to be honest with you, so I'm a, I would consider myself a diehard NBA fan, but I personally think the boycotts could have even gone further. You know, I think it's great that the uh, NBA players are now showing – you know, one, how serious they are about the impact side of things. And, you know, not they're not just going to play sports, you know, while, while black people are killed innocently. Um, 
And number two is just how much power they have, right? So to Jared's point, you know, if, if LeBron James doesn't play, then you don't have a league. And, you know, more and more athletes are starting to realize this. And so I, I hope, you know, this sends a ripple effect through other leagues as well. And athletes are just more uh, willing to, you know, flex their power to make positive social change. So I'm really excited to see, you know, how this develops going forward. Um, and the last thing I'll say is just, you know, Adam Silver as the NBA commissioner, you know, I, I don't think his, I think his impact is sometimes understated, right? Like he really, really empowers players to speak their minds. And I think more uh, commissioners in other leagues need to follow his lead. Yeah. I mean, in my opinion, I didn't want to go into depth because that would take me too long to rant about all the things that are wrong with the NBA leadership. But there are certain things that need to change. Like, I think I saw something on Twitter to where Michael Jordan is the only majority black owner among many mm-hmm. sports. And to me, that's crazy. It's like, man, you literally have to be the best player in your sport to even be considered a majority owner of a team. You know, that's something that's going to have to change. And then also, I'm more interested to see, like, the pipeline programs they're going to create to get Black professionals in these spaces that are leading the NBA or leading, you know, different places. Because at the end of the day, I feel like it does start at the top. And you can't have a league to where it's 80% African-American, but there's only one majority Black NBA owner. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know all the answers, but, you know, we're definitely we're learning every day. Um, but thank you, like Jared and Chris, so much for coming on. Um, you guys really provided a lot of insight. And I'm just, you know, it was nice having you guys on. Yeah, man. Thanks for having us. No problem. Absolutely. Thank you. If you like that episode of Privileged Black Kids, make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Um, follow us on Instagram at Privileged Black Kids Podcast. If you want to get in contact or follow Jared or Chris, you can reach out to them on LinkedIn and I'll put both of those in the description. Um, also, you know, thank you guys so much for all the support. Um, you guys mean a lot really listening to these episodes and, you know, hanging, hanging us with through, you know, this whole pandemic and, you know, COVID-19. Um, but yeah, thank you guys for listening to that episode of Privileged Black Kids. <laughs>